0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.
1: Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is Thursday the 15th of December. Very special edition this morning. We are back at Expo City. For the first time since the 31st of March, we're back in our old studio and delighted to be here. Bit of a Christmas winter theme this morning because they've got Winter City up here at Expo. Right, what are the big stories we've got for you today? Well, the biggie is interest rates. Overnight, the Fed raising interest rates by 50 basis points and telling us that more rate rises are ahead. UAE Central Bank immediately following suit. Wonder by our listener, wrote in this morning saying that his mortgage repayments are up 30% over the past year because of those rising interest rates. We will hear not only from the head of the Fed, Jay Powell, but also local economic analysis from Daniel Richards of Emirates NBD. What else have we got for you? Talking stock markets and IPOs, Americana debuting this week on the stock market. They're the KFC and Pizza Hut people doing really well actually in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh, up about 20%. The lawyer, Andrew Tarbuck has been giving us his take on that. Fascinating interview about hospitality with Chris Hartley of the Global Hotel Alliance coming up for you. And finally, talking real estate with John Lyons. Still booming, but how long can it last with those interest rates going up? John Lyons of Espas Real Estate. We'll hear from him shortly, but first up, let's get the details on those rate rises.
2: Festive cheer. Uh, of the festive Elf and Winter City to the not-so-festive cheer of Jay Powell.
1: More interest rate hikes overnight. We just got the take of Dan Richards from Emirates MBD, but let's hear from the man himself now, the head of the Fed, Jay Powell. The 50 basis points was widely expected. What people were waiting to hear was his commentary, and his press conference lasts about an hour. So last night, picture the scene, 11 o'clock, 1130 I'm sitting on the sofa, Morocco, France on the TV, and my, and my laptop we're <laughs> watching the press conference with Jay Powell. And, and this is what he had to say. This is how he justified the rate rises so far this year and warned that more are to come.
3: We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate in order to, to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. We are seeing the effects on demand in the most interest-sensitive sectors of the economy, such as housing. It will take time, however, for the full effects of monetary restraint to be realized, especially on inflation.
1: And the labor market is a big part of this. Have a listen to Jay Powell talking about the unemployment rate below 5%. The labor market is a big part of why he believes and his colleagues believe they need to keep raising rates, to
3: fight inflation that 4.7 percent is is still a strong labor market the the reports we get from the field are that uh, companies are very reluctant to lay people off other than the tech companies which is a you know a story unto itself generally companies want to hold on to the workers they have because it's been very very hard to hire so and you've got all these vacancies out there far in excess of the number of employed people that doesn't sound like a, a you know a labor market where a lot of people will need to be put out of work but he
1: did acknowledge that inflation is coming under control to an extent. And he said, you know, there are different parts of inflation. There's inflation for stuff, you know, goods, washing machines, cars, iPhones. There's inflation in the labor market, as he just mentioned there, wage price inflation, the housing market as well. So he, he broke it down into three categories. And he did acknowledge that for goods, inflation is coming down. We had data just before the meeting that consumer price inflation for November, month on month, only rose by 0.1%. That is negligible. And if that stays for the next 11 months, then you're going to have consumer price inflation of 1.5-ish percent. There's no guarantee it will. It could be a blip. It could be a one-off. But this is Jay Powell acknowledging that for stuff, for goods that we buy, inflation is coming down. Here's Jay.
3: We see now, as we've been expecting really for a year and a half, that supply conditions would get better and ultimately supply chains get fixed and, and demand settles down a little bit and maybe goes back to services a little bit and we start to see goods inflation coming down. We're now starting to see that uh, in this report and the last one.
1: The Economist magazine reporting the biggest drag on headline inflation in November was a decline in energy costs. Uh, But the most encouraging development, says The Economist, with the breadth of deflation, many of the consumer goods that were in short supply during the COVID-19 pandemic are now readily available. Prices for cars, children's clothing, furniture, televisions and toys all declined. That is deflation. According to The Economist, Uh, all I want for Christmas is for the Federal Reserve to stop raising interest rates and start reversing. Not before Christmas, is it? That's for sure. Very
0: (laughs) unlikely. This is the bite-sized business breakfast, exclusively on Dubaii1038.com.
1: Yeah, taking stock of local markets. Busy time right now. We mentioned the Bloomberg story earlier. They're reporting that bankers are moving to Dubai. From Hong Kong, from London, from everywhere, because IPOs are drying up around the world. But here in the Gulf, they are booming. Let's get a bit more perspective on this. Who's someone who is involved in the thick of the IPO process. He is a lawyer uh, based here in Dubai. He is uh, joining us now live in the studio. We say a very warm welcome to Andrew Tarbuck, Head of Capital Markets at Altamimi. Morning, Andrew.
4: Good morning, Richard. Hi, Tom. Thanks for you? driving
1: out to Expo, by the way, to be yeah, with us this morning. Not problem Just a problem
4: Just a little new challenge for me in the morning. it's <laughs> no problem at all.
1: Getting up early doors. So, Americana looks like it's been a real success. Sure, a closing share price yesterday in Riyadh, 3.16. Saudi rials. it listed at 2.7 Saudi Riyals. It's up about 20-ish percent. Similar story in Abu Dhabi, where it's also listed. What's your take on this one?
4: So I think um, you know there's various elements that you judge success. Uh, one of the main points is obviously the share price performance, and one of the things that you know so much work goes into an IPO, but the first day of trading is such a big day, and we we expect what we call a, a pop in the share price, which you know is really a function of how you've priced the the, the IPO, and you saw a great pop. So I think it went up initially in the initial trading of 12.6 percent in abu dhabi uh and 6.7 percent i think in initial trading uh, on the first day i think they ended up at three uh, 2.24 uh at the end of the day and 6.7 percent in abu dhabi so that that's a great success from a pricing point but it's a success from a structural point. This is the first dual listing between the Saudi exchange Tadawal, and uh, and the ADX. So as a structural IPO and you know fungibility for Saudi investors versus UAE investors, it's a it's a success from a structural perspective as well. So are we likely to see more of these? I think so. I think so. I mean, look, the the two hottest jurisdictions for IPOs around the world are Saudi and the UAE and UAE? You've got two exchanges, DFM and ADX. But at the end of the day, um, you've got literally that possibility now of more dual listings between two really, really fizzing exchanges. And so, yeah, I think there's there's definitely scope. Once it's been done, it's a precedent deal. There's definitely more to come.
1: So I, I see why it would happen for this company public investment fund had invested in americana saudi arabia mohammed Alibar, prominent uae business person so i get that but what would be the incentive for another company to do that what's the benefit if you own a i don't know car dealership or or a steel factory of doing this because it's more fees for investment bankers isn't it? <laughs> and, and lawyers like yourself
4: yeah look i think you actually make a very good tangential point here which is it's not right for everybody so one of the historical pieces around americana is it has had saudi investors all along so it made a lot of sense you you allow them a liquidity issue where you know they can actually sell their shares on a public market so historically that was the right reason. So i think look it's not going to be the right option for every single ipo i think you have to look at where your potential shareholders are where your existing shareholders are and actually where you want to actually raise funds so i think you know for many many IPOs that we do that are based in the UAE on the DFM Is we actually go to saudi investors now they don't actually trade on their own exchange in saudi they trade on say the dfm whereas now you'll get a position where if you do a dual listing you can trade on either exchange so it gives that flexibility to investors but it's not the right option for every single ipo that's for sure Um, but i think if you've got a saudi nexus or even if the business i mean americana is very sort of retail focused business it has a lot of nexus to saudi so it made a lot of sense from a business perspective and a shareholder perspective
1: Let's talk about people working in your business. Bloomberg story this morning, we mentioned it a little bit earlier just to recap the headline. Dubai is a new hotspot for idle bankers chasing IPO deals and uh, they I don't know if you heard on the way in, they quote one investment banker, not named, based in the UK capital, joking that most of his local colleagues in London who handle IPOs are either in the pub or in Dubai these days.
4: And <laughs> um, Yeah, I guess being in a pub in Dubai would be possibly better, but anyway um, look, it's, it's it's been a feature actually all year. Um, we saw um, a lot of bankers come in uh, around about April time this year um, from Europe particularly, and you know the figures speak for themselves. I mean, I don't, you know, uh, I'm I'm from the UK, but I don't want to do down my my sort of home market. But London Stock Exchange raised 1.8 billion pounds all year so far. That's about the same that Americana raised in one IPO. So just to give you an equivalence of of how much fundraising is going on in London, and I can see why you know the 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 the, the talent and the banking talent, advisory talent will move to where it's busiest, and it's it's already happened. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I, you know, I love the Bloomberg guys, but you know, this this has been happening for six to eight months.
1: Are you getting the CVs? Because imagine if you're a, a lawyer working in this trade and you see head of capital markets at Altamimi and Company. Yeah. That's where you're going to send your CV, isn't it?
4: Uh, absolutely. No, we get CVs. I mean, Where it actually first started is when things happened in Russia and a lot of, lot of um, lawyers uh, had to move out of Russia. So we, we actually saw a lot of talent coming into Dubai as a region. Um, but then just as the markets have, have uh, been very volatile in the U.S. And, and London, we're seeing CVs from U.S. and London. So U.S. too, which is really interesting. Um, and it's usually people with a nexus to the Middle East. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely the beneficiaries.
1: Bloomberg makes this point. Um, it says, despite working on Middle East deals around the clock, the IPO boom is not translating into a fee bonanza for advisors. But then goes on to say that Americana paid 200 million dirhams in fees. Yeah. That sounds like a bonanza to me. What are you seeing?
4: Yeah, well, I, I guess... Um what what is defined as a bonanza <laughs> i guess look it's from a fees perspective the number of deals that we're seeing in the market can only mean more fees i mean in terms of actual returns and you know fees per deal i've not done that analysis and i wouldn't know where you know bloomberg stats come from but on that but i wouldn't have thought that anybody's too concerned about the fees <laughs> to be to be absolutely honest
1: bonuses will be all right we've got i think so we've got 30 seconds left for you crystal ball 2023
4: does this continue or run out of steam it continues so you've still got the rest of the dubai privatization process we had four ipos this year six more to come whether it's 23 24 um adnock have uh announced their gas processing um unit they're going to ipo um so yeah there's there's more to come alan sari i think are in the market for for, um, for early next year as well. So there's, private, there's more to come. Private sector and public sector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah.
1: Looking forward to it. We will speak again, Andrew Tarbuck, partner and head of Capital Markets at Altamimi. But for now, thanks for joining us in our studio up at Expo City Dubai. Thanks, Richard.
2: Yeah, cheers, Andrew. Thank you. And uh,
0: happy Christmas if we don't see you before
4: Christmas. Thank you. Happy Christmas, team. Yeah, Great getting, to see
0: you. Getting to the festive spirit up here at Winter City. Absolutely. <laughs> Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
2: Indeed you are. We've travelled out to Expo City today. Are you travelling over the festive period? What about 23, though? Have you made travel plans already? Well, if you have, you wouldn't be alone. That's according to UAE headquartered Global Hotel Alliance or GHA, the world's largest alliance of independent hotel brands who've identified five clear global travel trends for next year through a recent survey uh, of their GHA Discovery loyalty program members. Uh, Joining us to talk us through those five top tips uh, is, of course, their CEO. Uh, The CEO of Global Hotel Alliance is Chris Hartley, who joins us now live on Microsoft Teams. Morning, Chris good morning thanks nice to be with you yeah great uh, thank you so much indeed for your time this morning and thanks also for the research it makes for some really interesting points i suppose the only way to do it is work through those five points let's start with number one if we can longing for leisure with up to six trips planned really
5: well this was a pretty staggering uh, response actually and uh, much more than we expected we've seen 2022 being the year of leisure travel um superseding business travel for the first time ever, certainly in in my recollection, and I've had quite a long career in the hotel industry, Uh, we expected business travel to come back more strongly next year. But all our customers are saying they expect to continue to travel on leisure more than on business, up to six trips, Uh, leisure trips next year against maybe only three or four business trips. So it it really is an interesting trend, um, this desire to do more leisure travel that's continuing to 2023.
2: It is fascinating because I thought it would sort of taper off a little bit after the initial, uh, what, what do we call it, revenge tourism that we saw after COVID. Yeah. But this would suggest not and that people are planning almost as many trips as Richard Dean does in a calendar year as well. So uh, <laughs> extraordinary um, finding there. As to where um, Japan's come out as one of the surprise destinations.
5: I know it's another surprise really, partly because Japan's been so restricted from a travel point of view unfortunately um right through the pandemic and and even this year really i was hoping myself to go to japan a few weeks ago and it was very complicated until they they lifted the the restrictions completely um but only very recently so the fact that everyone suddenly wants to go to japan is a little surprising on the other hand if you recall before the pandemic there'd been the rugby world cup there was then the delayed olympics a lot of international companies um in the hotel sector also opening up in japan in the next few years. So there's been a lot of talk about the country. The tourism board has been very active uh, despite the travel restrictions.
2: Regional travel, will that continue to be
5: strong? Regional travel still still um, the most likely um, uh, volume uh, driver next year. Um, people will stay in domestic markets, um, in particular places like the, the US, Australia, China, of course. Um, if you ask the Chinese where they'd like to travel to, I think they just basically say anywhere outside the country if they drop the zero covid uh, travel restrictions um so i think though domestic travel remains very important especially in terms of business travel because we're seeing business travel still restricted by um companies who don't want people to go too far afield of course the advent of uh, uh online technology enabling people to do meetings from from their offices as we're doing now so i think business travel remains subdued and remains more domestic
2: the other finding i like experiences count explain that one
5: Well, it's interesting when, during the pandemic, we asked people what do they want to do. The initial reaction was to go far away from everywhere, and places like the Maldives were very popular. Now, um, we're hearing people talking again more about experiential travel. They want to do new things. The sort of notion of the bucket list is coming back, and I think people are looking to discover new locations. So, we're expecting uh, travel to um, more destinations than we saw in the last uh, year or so, with places like Dubai actually was our number one destination this year. So it's, you might call Dubai a traditional market these days. We're expecting people to explore the world a little further in 2023. Is it
2: still about location at any cost or is it location with value in mind?
5: I think price, I mean, price certainly comes in at number two, interestingly, is the the consideration when deciding where where people are going to go to. But location and country, I've just uh, been in a travel conference here in Dubai the last two days and interesting research that the country is the thing that really determines first and foremost uh, people's travel choice so country and destination tourism remains uh, really important in in helping people determine where they're going to travel to then price and then funny enough loyalty program so are you getting some form of discount? are you getting special privileges upgrades are very popular um, obviously in hotels so um, But yeah, location and price remain up there always.
2: I like the idea of loyalty as well, because I think maybe that's something that COVID taught us as well. If you get a good experience, um, are you going to go back and uh, redeem or hope for that experience again? Are we seeing an increase in loyalty?
5: We're seeing a huge increase. We actually created uh, what we like to think is the world's first hospitality currency this year called Discovery Dollars. So we give up to 7% uh, back in Discovery Dollars, which are the same as the U.S., Dollar, and uh, they have a real value. You can use them as a payment system in any of our hotels. You can use it on food and beverage. You can use it in spas. And we're seeing customers highlight uh, discounts and some form of cash back um, as a very important reason to choose a brand or, in our case, a collection of brands. And you see all of the big brands going um, very heavily in uh, to investing in that OT platforms, you see that here in the region. Just look at the advertising down Shakerzadeh Road. If it's, they are going to be loyal to brands that recognise them, that look after them, and give something back.
2: Chris, going to have to leave it there. News is coming up in just a few moments' time, but thank you so much indeed for joining us this morning uh, and giving us the rundown on that latest uh, survey, those latest findings from Global Hotel Alliance, the GHA. Uh, Chris Hartley is the
0: CEO of the aforementioned organisation. Just the highlights. This is the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
1: John Lyons has stayed with us. He's the managing director of Espace Real Estate here in Dubai. John, thanks for sticking around. Thank you for having me. Let's jump into some of the questions we're getting, and there are many of them this morning. Tom, I can't see the question from Ajaz on my screen. Have you got that one?
2: So more of a statement. Uh, thanks so much indeed for them. Keep them coming, 4001. Here's one saying, uh, John, the high that you keep comparing it to was exactly bubble territory, in my opinion. So, to, So it's not a fair comparison. Discuss.
6: I think it's questionable whether that was a bubble, just because the property market went on a declining phase after that previous high doesn't mean to say it was a bubble. We did have dramatic changes in the region that caused the decline in the property prices during the last cycle, Um, oil price being one. Oil price went down quite quickly to about $24 a barrel and then went into negative territory. So there's always things on the horizon that can derail a market. But just because those exist doesn't mean to say the property market is in a bubble. And um, what I'm doing by comparing to that previous market high is pointing out the fact that in inflation-adjusted terms, we're not anywhere near that previous high. And if property as an asset class is a good hedge against inflation, which it traditionally has been, we've seen that in many markets all over the world over history, then it should track. It should keep up with inflation. So that's where I'm drawing the comparison. We're still a long way away from the prices that we have previously seen which I don't even regard as being bubble territory.
1: In terms of the prices that we're paying per square foot now, I know this is something that you look at and you compare it to other markets, and it's a two-part question. Firstly, which are the most accurate markets to compare Dubai to, to? Sometimes London gets compared, but maybe that's an unfair comparison. What would be a good comparison, City? And, and B, where do we stand in terms of, you know, average prices per square foot benchmarked globally?
6: Well, I know that people don't like to compared Dubai to the more mature, developed markets like London. And that's usually because when they look at London as an asset class, they think it is a safe haven for tying up your capital. But I like to look at at the property market for what it's intended for, which is to house people, the people that live in the country. Who wants to live in this country are people that enjoy the lifestyle and enjoy the high earnings potential that the job market has to offer here. And if you look at this market in a price-to-earnings ratio, It's not an overpriced market, it's actually a very affordable market and more affordable than most of these other markets like London, like Hong Kong, Singapore or any other community or city where you would be able to enjoy the kind of lifestyle that we enjoy here and also the type of job opportunities that we enjoy here. So I think it is okay to compare it to those big global cities. Singapore is uh, obviously a, a,
1: a good comparator for Dubai. Actually, just yesterday or the day before, we had someone in the uh, studio, Gary Dugan, old friend of ours, used to live in London and Dubai, was in Singapore for a few years. He's back and, and he's not alone.
6: I think there's a lot of people that live in Singapore currently who are looking to move to Dubai. I know I know that anecdotally from speaking to people myself and I know that from looking at the profile of some of the buyers that we represent when they're buying their new family home. They're moving from Singapore and places like like Hong Kong and other cities similar.
1: My, my favourite quote this morning is from a Bloomberg story. This is the headline. Dubai is a new hotspot for idle bankers chasing IPO deals. So we've got that influx of bankers. And we, we know that. Goldman Sachs is hiring not IPO bankers, but private bankers. But this is my favourite quote of the morning. Bloomberg quotes a investment banker, unnamed, who said, speaking from London, most of his local colleagues who handle IPOs in London
6: are either in Dubai or in the pub these days. <laughs> It's interesting to see the headlines. There is constantly um, reports of banks moving here and job creation here, new jobs being opened up here. And every time I read a headline like that, I think these are high paying jobs and these people need somewhere to live. And that's good for the property market.
1: What are you seeing in your rental business of these people moving in? Because you tend not to buy the, you know, day one of moving to Dubai. You have a couple of years here. And then if you test the water and then maybe you'll think about buying. But what are you seeing in terms of the rental market? People moving from Moscow. A lot of people have moved from Moscow or Singapore, as we mentioned.
6: Yeah, high prices being paid in the rental market. Not a lot of supply. Not a lot of good properties. Fully furnished properties do well. If people can move in with their bags and it's already furnished. There'll be a top price paid for rent. And it's the high yield in the market that's one of the key factors that allows this market to absorb rising interest rates. The yield is, is a big part of that. And at 6.5% gross yields in many communities, our ability to absorb interest rates is far greater than cities where yields might be only 3 or 4% at the starting point.
2: More questions coming in for you, John. Uh, this one from Mark saying, recently bought a property in Ras al The broker fee was 4%. In Dubai, it seems to be usually around about the 2% mark. Why are the broker fees not standardised for secondary market purchases?
6: In Dubai, it's been the norm that 2% is the brokerage fee for a long time since I've been here, over 10 years and beyond, I'm sure. In other cities, it will largely, I'm sure, depend on the, the value of the property it wouldn't be unreasonable for a minimum fee to be charged if the value is is maybe lower. So that's, I don't know the value of the property that was purchased in Ras Alkema, but that might be one variable factor to consider.
1: I'm sure you'd like it if fees were 4%, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Maybe <laughs> we can move that trend. <laughs> uh, last question. Back where we started interest rates up again last night, someone writes in, uh, my current mortgage EMI every month installment is up 30%. And man, that's tough. It could have been me writing that because my mortgage repayments were up about 30%. Distress sales, 30 seconds.
6: We're not seeing any distress sales at the moment. And I think that while the economy is still doing as well as it is, and with people still having a lot of disposable income, although it's never nice to see a mortgage increase at 30%, I think that the majority of people still have the ability to meet those costs. And we'll absorb these rates more than many other cities around the world. John, we could go on, but I appreciate your time this morning. I'll let you go. Thanks
1: for making the journey up to see us here at Expo City. Thank you for having me. John Lyons is the managing director of Espass Real Estate.
0: You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.